Well, good evening. It's good to be with you this evening. We appreciate everybody being back with us once again as we spend some time in God's Word. We, as Larry said, are part three of a four-part series about Israel. And so we are glad we could do this for you and with you. We've just continually to get a lot, a lot of positive comments about this series, and we're very thankful for that. And we're glad to have each of you with us tonight. Appreciate our guests. Good to see Mr. Bill with us tonight. Really appreciate you being with us tonight. There are booklets in the back, and we've had a lot of people talk to us about this series. We have gone through lots and lots of verses, lots of material. And so the first two lessons are in the booklet, and then about page three is tonight's stuff. And so uh, if you got your booklet and want to follow along, we'll be about page three of that booklet. We encourage you to take those, share them with others, take as many booklets as you want. Uh, we'll make more if we need to, and we'll just do that. And so what we've done so far, we started with the origin of the word Israel, and we traced it through the Old Testament, and we looked at other words that are used in relationship with Jewish people from the Old Testament, and we focused upon three promises that God made to Abraham. He would have a great nation, and that was fulfilled. And that they would be given a land, and that was fulfilled. And through his seed, all the families of the nations of the earth would be blessed. That was fulfilled in Jesus. That was lesson one. Lesson two, we trace that from the end of the Old Testament going through the New Testament. And what we saw was there was a transition taking place. And what we saw in the New Testament was that the people of God no longer are based upon who you are, where you're from, but your relationship to Jesus. And so one of the key verses we used was in the book of Galatians, chapter 3, verse 29. Those who belong to Christ are Abraham's descendants according to the promise. That promise goes all the way back to our very first lesson in the book of Genesis. The promise through, all the, through Abraham's seed, all the, all the nations would be blessed. And that was that. So when we talk about in our second lesson who is Israel, there's really, it's kind of confusing because you could say physically, I am from Israel, as I could say I am from America, or ethnically, I am Jewish. But we also saw that by the New Testament, the people of God were spiritual Israel. And so it doesn't matter whether you're circumcised or not, it doesn't matter whether you lived in Israel or not, the people of God were the people that that were following Jesus Christ. And that's, that's kind of where we left off with our, our second lesson. Now tonight, what we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about this concept of the kingdom. Where does the kingdom fit in with this idea of Israel? This is really where a lot of the politics and the sentiment and the uh, speeches are going on here in America. There's a strong, strong belief among a lot of people today that what's going on in this war in Israel is directly related to what we're going to read about in our Bibles. So in a minute, we're going to, we've got to throw you some more things up here in a minute, but in a minute we're going to be in the book of Zechariah. So take some time and get there. Sometimes it's hard to find Zechariah. It's back, back near the end of the Old Testament. And in just a few moments, we're going to be reading from Zechariah chapter 9. But, but a lot of national prominent preachers, authors, have spoken about what's going on in Israel. And just to give you some uh, examples of this, 
David Jeremiah, a very well-known preacher and writer, has said this. He says, in 1967, the Mount of Olives returned to Israeli control, setting the stage for Christ's return and the final battle in Israel. That's why there's so much interest in what's going on. People don't talk about Russia and Ukraine because who cares, basically. But this, they think, has biblical proportions. And a lot of people are interested in such things as that. Hal Lindsey is another example, author several decades ago of the late great planet Earth. Uh, in his 90s now, but still very outspoken, especially when there are things like are presently going on in Israel. Lindsay says this, there remains but one more event to completely set the stage for Israel's part in the last great act of her historical drama. This is to rebuild the ancient temple of worship upon its old site. Obstacle or no obstacle, it is certain that the temple will be rebuilt. Prophecy demands it. With the Jewish nation reborn in the land of Palestine, ancient Jerusalem once again under Jewish control for the first time in 2,600 years, and talk of rebuilding the great temple, the most important sign of Jesus Christ's coming is before us. It is like the key piece of a jigsaw puzzle being found for all those who trust in Jesus Christ. It is a time of electrifying excitement. So get that idea. They are, they are anticipating the literal temple being rebuilt. So for this to be fulfilled in their minds, Israel has to control that territory. And so for them, it's a matter of fulfillment of prophecy, which leads to our next quotation. Greg Lowry, very prominent preacher today. You're seeing Bible prophecy fulfilled in your lifetime, in real time, before your very eyes. These are things that have been saying, said currently about these things. Robert Jeffress, very famous preacher down in Dallas, Texas, uh, frequently interviewed along with David Jeremiah on Fox News and other news outlets, said just a couple of weeks ago, the war in Israel is ultimately not a human struggle. It is a spiritual struggle against the forces of darkness Israel is the only nation that has God's promise of endurance. God has not given that promise to any other nation of this world. And because of God's promise to Israel, Satan has set his sights on Israel from the very beginning. Because if Satan can destroy and annihilate Israel, he can prove that God is incapable of keeping his promises. Right now, what we are witnessing is a spiritual evil it is Satan himself that is empowering Hamas and the Iranian rulers to wipe Israel from the land, but they will not succeed. So once again, from these very, very popular preachers who write everywhere, who have massive audiences, they see what's taking place is a matter of Bible prophecy. Max Lucado, some of you will recognize his name. Max Lucado started off within the Churches of Christ. He's since moved onward, but he has said the current war is a signal of the coming end of this age. And so again, and we could just go on and on and on with what a lot of people are saying. To and so that brings us to our study tonight. Why are they saying these things and where are they getting these things? There have been preachers, pundits, 
authors you you may remember from a couple of days or decades ago the left behind series of books it has sold nearly just shy when i i looked uh, just a few days ago just shy of a hundred million copies of books it has been rebooted as a series of movies not once not twice but three times as a series of movies this has gotten even the attention of hollywood and sold a whole lot of merchandise the question is like you said where's it all coming from so there, there's a series of passages and you'll see if you get, if you're following along the outline you'll see them in the outline there now time does not allow us to read all these verses nor discuss them we'll, we'll highlight just a few of them but passages like Ezekiel 38, about verse 48, or, or chapter 48, Daniel 7 through about verse 12, chapter 12, Zechariah, I'm going to read that for you in just a moment, Matthew 24, uh, Revelation 20. Now, all these passages kind, kind of bring up this idea. Now, there's a common thread running through all those passages as a standpoint of literature. They're not historical books. They're not gospels. They're, they're a part of literature we call uh, apocalyptic all of them and there's some, fam some familiarity about that but let, let me just read a couple Zechariah passages here Zechariah chapter 9 and in verse 5 Zechariah 9 verse 5 Ashkelon will see it and be afraid Gaza too will writhe in great pain Gaza is where the battle is right now it also says at the end of this verse 5 it says, moreover, the king will perish from Gaza. Turn just a few pages to chapter 14 of Zechariah. 14, verse 2 and verse 3. Zechariah 14, excuse me, verse 1, verse 2. Zechariah 14, 1 and 2. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil will be taken from you and divided among you. Now listen to verse 2. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. The city will be captured, the houses plundered, and women ravished, and half of the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. They read passages like that and say, October 7th, that's what happened. And so our study tonight, let's talk about this kingdom and look at some things with that. Yeah, you mentioned apocalyptic literature. And that is an important kind of literature to, to study in God's Word. Uh, we have both taught classes on some of these apocalyptic books. All that that word means is an unveiling. And, of course, the book that comes to our minds in the New Testament is the book of Revelation, an unveiling of Jesus Christ. Revelation 1, verse 1, something that, that Jesus was revealing to his people. What trips us up a lot of times is the kind of language. It is very vivid. I've heard you describe it as kind of picture book, right. sort of language. It is not like the book of Acts, for instance, history, where Paul went to this city, pre, uh, Peter preached to this crowd. It is a kind of literature that invites us to envision sort something a lot of times it's rooted in hard times coming destruction coming it uses language like the flood or like 
the sun being darkened and the moon and the stars falling to the earth. It, it describes oftentimes a day of the Lord. We read about different days of the Lord in the Old Testament against Babylon, against Assyria, against even the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of Judah. You mentioned Matthew 24 that I know you want to take us back to in just a moment. If you'd like to open your Bibles back to Matthew 24, it is language about something that is going to happen, but we make a serious mistake when we take that language literally. And I know you're, you're going to talk a little bit more about that. For those of you that would like to dig in a little more on that, I think both of us would recommend just a little book, less than 100 pages by... Mark Roberts, a brother in Christ. Mark has been here and, and preached a number of times. He wrote a little book just called Understanding Apocalyptic Literature. I would highly, highly, highly recommend that. If you're interested in understanding more, why did Daniel or Zechariah or John in Revelation why did they talk like that, and, and what are we to make of it? So it, it, it's a specific type of literature, as we might think about poetry, okay? Poetry sometimes is not taken literally. Uh, some of our hymns have, have poetic words in there. And so, so when you understand that, that body of literature, it helps you understand some things. And uses symbols that in that culture they could understand. I mean, for instance... If I talk to you in the foyer before you leave about this next Saturday, Cardinals and Wildcats doing battle next Saturday, you're going to understand, most of you, what I'm talking about. And I'm not talking about literal Cardinals and literal Wildcats, right? But we use familiar symbols from our culture. Well, that's exactly what apocalyptic literature Absolutely. is doing. And, and, and just, just as, as a reminder, back last month on our Friday podcast, we took four podcasts and we walked through Matthew 24. So if, you, if you'd like a deep dive into Matthew 24, we, we'd go back to our website. Those are, those are listed there. But, but just pulling up one passage here in Matthew 24 and verse 34, here the Lord says, in the midst of all the things he says in Matthew 24, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And so that, that's, a, that's a reminder for us about the things that's going to take place. And so this evening, as we talk about the kingdom, there are three strands that stand out real quickly. And, and that is the belief that these prophecies are literal. That's part of the problem. And then the belief that Jesus is literally coming back to planet Earth. And then that Jesus is going to establish an earthly kingdom and literally reign, as David did, build that temple in Jerusalem. That's running through all those quotations we talked about. And so what this leads to is a theory that's called premillennialism. And Jason's going to walk us through that here in just a minute. Pre, remember, means before. Millennial means a thousand. So before a thousand something's going to happen. So take us through this. All right. So from a Jewish point of view, a, a not a, uh, a biological point of view, but from a Jewish religious point of view, here is Israel and they are still waiting for their Messiah, right? 
They will acknowledge that Jesus from Nazareth lived about 2,000 years ago. They believe he was an imposter. He was not the Christ. They are still waiting. But there are millions and millions of millions of people who believe that Jesus was the Messiah, but who also believe this theory of premillennialism. Let me try and paint that picture for you in just very, very, very basic terms. You've got Israel, and you've got the coming of Jesus, but from the standpoint of what is known primarily as dispensational premillennialism, it is the idea that Jesus came to establish his kingdom, and he failed. Why? Because he was crucified. The kingdom was postponed because Jesus was crucified. And so God had to come up with, for lack of a better term, a plan B. And that is described in premillennial theory as the church age. That's where we are right now. But the reason some of those men, the quotations that we shared just a little while ago, said anybody who believes in Jesus and in biblical prophecy, for, for them it is a time of great excitement. Well, perhaps things like what is going on in Jerusalem is a sign of something that is about to happen. And in premillennial theory, the first domino that is going to fall is the rapture. You might have heard people talk about that before, where Jesus is going to come secretly, and all who love and serve him will suddenly disappear. In fact, if you've ever read those Left Behind novels, the opening scene is a pilot. The pilot is a believer in Christ. The pilot disappears and the plane crashes. Or you've got a husband that's not a believer and a wife that is. And he walks into the bedroom. His wife was just sitting there on the living room couch. And he comes back in and all that's left are her clothes. She's, she's gone. The theory is Jesus is going to come in secret. All of those who are faithful to him will suddenly disappear, including those who have died, the righteous of all time past. They will be raised and they will be with Jesus during a period of seven years. Saints, those who love and have served Jesus, will be with him in paradise for seven years. But for those who were left behind, as the theory goes, there will be great tribulation here on earth, such as has not been seen in the history of the world. You will have some that come to believe that Jesus is, in fact, the one we should have been listening to. In this theory, they are commonly referred to as tribulation saints. They weren't believers before, but they will be during that period of seven years. And somewhere in that period, the temple will literally be rebuilt in Jerusalem and some sort of embodiment of evil known as the Antichrist, a real 
living, breathing human being will come to rule over all of the world and be the, ancient, uh, the agent of evil. That sets up in premillennial theory what is called the Battle of Armageddon. Now you read that word and it's Hebrew and Greek equivalent in the last book of the Bible. What we are encouraging you to think about is that last book of the Bible is highly symbolic apocalyptic literature. I'm just going to say I don't believe there is going to be a literal battle of Armageddon with tanks and nuclear bombs and, and all of those things in a specific valley in Jerusalem. But premillennial theory says the Antichrist is going to lead the forces of evil. And just when it looks like all is lost, that's when Jesus visibly returns. He wages that battle of Armageddon. He wins those tribulation saints who have died. They will be resurrected from the dead. The saints will all be judged. And that is when... Jesus will establish his kingdom. Remember, according to the theory, very generally speaking, he tried in the first century and he did not succeed. And so this is what will lead to his ultimate victory, the kingdom being established, Satan being bound, ushering in this period of a thousand year reign on the earth. Pre-millennial theory is saying, well, we're living prior to this thousand-year reign on earth where Jesus will literally reign on a literal throne in the literal city of Jerusalem. And after that thousand-year reign, then the wicked will be raised, the wicked will be judged, and that is ultimately what will lead to heaven and hell. It's a lot to take in, but... What we want you to see this evening is, well, in premillennial theory, that's where we are. That's where the Israeli flag and the American flag are because, I mean, if all of this is true and we want Jesus to return, well, a couple of things need to happen. We need to make sure that Israel maintains control of the literal city of Jerusalem. Israel is someday able to rebuild a literal temple and if maybe this conflict leads to these things happening, maybe we're on the doorstep of the end of it all. And a lot of people believe it is. Now, you, now those that come here often, you look at that, you may think, that's the craziest thing I've ever seen. But more people believe that than do not believe that. And across the board, mainline congregations, mainline churches, Protestant denominations, even some within our fellowship, hold two parts of that theory. And there's just a lot there, okay? And so, so what we're going to do tonight is we want to talk about just two or three major aspects. Uh, I look at this kind of like the, the, a, a bunch of dominoes. If one piece falls, they're all going to fall because they're all connected together. And so what we want to talk about tonight is this idea of the kingdom, God's kingdom. And let's talk about that. So let's turn our Bibles to the book of Daniel. I'm going to read a few verses here. This is where we first are introduced to this concept of God's kingdom. Um, we're going to go back to verse 32. And you'll see on the screen there, there's this statue or this image. 
And that's where this takes place. Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon. He has this dream and he sees this image in his dream. He asks his fellow Babylonians what this means, nobody knows. They remember a guy named Daniel and he can interpret dreams. So Daniel is brought in and he's told what this dream means. This is a prophecy of God. So begin verse 32. The head of that statue is made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands. It struck that statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. The iron and the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floor. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that was struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Verse 36 now. This was the dream. Now we will tell its interpretation before you. You, O king, are the king of kings to whom God of heaven has given the, the kingdom, the power, the strength, and its glory. Whenever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused, them, uh, caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. You is Nebuchadnezzar. You is Babylon. That's essential. One of the things we're going to see here is as he's telling this interpretation, he's unfolding the timeline for us. Okay? Verse 39. After you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you. Pause there and go to chapter 5. And we'll come right back. But at the end of chapter 5, you remember where this hand appears on this wall, just a hand, and he wrote three words that kind of seems kind of obscure to us, but means you, you've been weighed in the balances and found lacking. Verse 30, that same night Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, or Babylon, was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. The Medes and the Persians, that's kingdom number two. Okay, let's go back to Daniel chapter 2 now. Okay. After you, verse 39, there arise another kingdom inferior to you. That's the Medes and the Persians. Then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. Now stop there for a minute. When we think about our history, there was a man by the name of Alexander. Alexander the Great. And supposedly he sat down and wept one day because there was no other places to conquer. He conquered the entire world. The third kingdom is the Greeks. Okay, let's read on now. Then there'll be a fourth kingdom, as strong as iron, and as much as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. So a very strong kingdom, the fourth kingdom is going to come about. And that you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay, partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom. Jump down now to verse 44. In the days of those kings, he's still talking about that fourth kingdom, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put into all these kingdoms, but itself will endure forever. And as much as you saw a stone that was cut out of the mountain without hands, 
And it was Christ the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God has made known to you, King, what will take place in the future. So the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. Now, take your Bible and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, if you will. Luke chapter 2. Timeline. That's what we're looking at here. A timeline. Luke chapter 2, as Luke begins this Gospel. This notes verse 1. Then verse 4 and verse 5. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Caesar. He wasn't a Babylonian. He wasn't Persian. He wasn't Greek. Okay? When we think about kings, it could be any nation. We think about presidents, it could be a lot of places. Herod's meant one name. Caesar's meant one kingdom. And that's the Romans. In the days of Caesar Augustus, we're talking about the Roman time period. Jump down to verse 4, verse 5, same chapter. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was, house, he was of the house and of the family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him, who was with child. During the days of the fourth kingdom, the God of heaven is going to establish his kingdom. That's what's taking place here. Now the question is, we know Daniel prophesied that. God foretold through Daniel, in those days, God would establish a kingdom. Really, really, really important to this entire discussion is, did that come true in the way God said that it was going to come true? And just rapid fire things to take into account to understand whether or not this was true. For instance, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, the Gospels open with a message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's right here. It's in the days, just like Daniel said, of the Roman Empire, it's time to turn. The, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mark, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 4. Uh, the verse before was John the Baptist. Here's Jesus speaking. He says, from that time he began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All right. So now, now, now stop there for a minute. If I was to say, can we meet shortly? And you say, yes. When do you want to meet? I say, uh, 35 years from now. You're going to say, what? And so if we say the kingdom is at hand, John the Baptist said that, Jesus said that, but we said we've now passed 2,000 years and still not here. You see a problem we're starting to see? And it's one thing to say it's at hand. We still haven't figured out whether or not it actually arrives, right? In Mark chapter 9, very similar to what you read for us earlier from Matthew 24, Jesus said to his disciples, Mark chapter 9, verse 1, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now we're getting really serious. I mean, Jesus says it's going to happen before some of you even die. Which means three things. Number one, the people that heard the words of Jesus saw the kingdom in the first century. Number two, there are people on this planet who are 2,000 years old who actually heard Jesus speak. Or number three, 
Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about. If he doesn't know what he's talking about here, what else does he not know what he's talking about? The answer is number one. There were people who heard Jesus, who saw the kingdom before they died. In other words, Jesus died, but he didn't fail. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's see if we can't put some passages to that. Colossians chapter 1. Here the apostle says, uh, I'm going to turn around and read it this way. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. You are in the kingdom, is what the Colossians were told. You are in. How can I be in it? It's not here. Uh, Israel's got to win the battle of Armageddon with Jesus, and it's 2,000 years. And no, the apostle said through the Holy Spirit, you have been transferred into the kingdom. As the last book of the Bible is being introduced, John is its author. He has this incredible encounter with Jesus that you can read all about in the latter part of Revelation chapter 1. But notice how he describes himself at the beginning of this revelation. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, there there were hard times in the first century, right? I'm a partner in the tribulation and the kingdom. And the patient endurance that are in Jesus. I was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Certainly his life was hard, but John writes as someone who believes I'm in the kingdom and I'm writing to people who are also in the kingdom. So if the kingdom hadn't come, John, you're not in any tribulation. I'm a partner in tribulation and kingdom. Are you suffering? The answer is yes. That's why I'm on this island. I'm not here because it's a vacation place. I was put here in exile. You are suffering. The kingdom is here. Those two go together in that concept. Next passage. Okay, John 18. This talks a little bit, again, about the nature of the kingdom. And and as Daniel 2 talks about the kingdom, it was going to endure. It was going to be powerful. And he used this analogy of a stone cut without human hands. That meant it was divine. And so as Jesus stands before Pilate, he tells him in John 18, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was, we'd be fighting. So my kingdom is not like the kingdom, no, we don't use that term, but it's not like the kingdom of America. We have borders, okay? We, 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 have, we have an enduring time. It's not like the kingdom of David, David was a physical king and had a physical kingdom. There was a territory. There was a time period. My kingdom is not like this. My kingdom, he means, is spiritual. It's not governed by territory. You get to the oceans, it doesn't stop the kingdom. There are brethren all over this planet today who are worshiping God. The kingdom is everywhere. And and, and, and it acts differently than the kingdom of the world. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, Paul would tell us in Ephesians. Absolutely. It's not to say that people have not had questions about it, right? We read in Acts chapter 1, the resurrected Jesus has told his apostles to stay in Jerusalem. Something is about to happen. You can read all about it in Acts chapter 2, but when they had come together in Acts 1 verse 6, they asked him, the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he does not tell them a time frame that they're going to have to 
look for. He does not tell them to go out and amass as many weapons as they possibly can because it's time to overthrow Rome and kick them out of Jerusalem. What he says is, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. What's the kingdom going to be all about? It's going to be about the spreading of the gospel beginning in Jerusalem throughout all of Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And that passage says, when you receive the power, remember that Mark 9, 1 verse, some of you here will not taste of death till you see the kingdom come with power. That's what he's talking about. Yeah. So over here in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 16, okay, verse 18, verse 19. And I tell you that you're Peter, and upon this rock uh, I will build my church, and the gates of hell or Hades shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. While you bind on earth, I've been bound in heaven. While you loose on earth, I've been loose in heaven. And she's talking about two different things. I'm going to build my church, and by the way, here's the keys to the kingdom. Now you can't, you can't use these for 2,000 years till I come back, because the kingdom's not going to be established. Or... Is the kingdom and the church the same thing? The church is saved people. God's kingdom is not of this world. It's a spiritual realm. And what, what did God establish? Spiritual salvation. That's why he's driving that there. The kingdom is here, and the church is an earthly manifestation of we are, we are part of that kingdom today, yes. absolutely. So Matthew chapter 6, we kind of go into this. You know, sometimes the world calls this the Lord's Prayer. There are several aspects in which the Lord would not have said this. I think a better description is the model prayer. He tells the disciples, pray this way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And he says, your kingdom come. We don't say that. It would be like praying in, in, our, in our public prayer, Dear Lord, please let me be born on earth. Uh, hello, you're here. Thy kingdom come, it has come. It came in Jesus Christ. It came with salvation. So once again, just a reminder about those things. We want you to hear loud and clear. I mean, we can throw up passage after passage after passage that shows you this is how the apostles and the writers of the New Testament talk. The writer of Hebrews. Think about the significance of this. This is a Jew writing to Jews. We talked about the meaning of Hebrews in lesson one. Listen to what he says. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom. He does not say, therefore, let us be praying for that kingdom to come, right? He says, let's be grateful for the kingdom that we have received that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. We heard a lot in that premillennial theory about the building of a temple. Well, the New Testament message is the temple is here. It's built. And the temple is made up of people. Us. We Paul, are the temple. Paul asks in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, don't you know that you are, not just Jews, but Gentile Christians in Corinth, you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells, present tense, 
in you. Peter said the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 2. The message of the New Testament is the kingdom of, is here. The temple has been built. We are the temple of God. So you take out that one element about the kingdom. All of a sudden that little theory starts falling apart. If the kingdom has come, then all these other things really doesn't matter, do they? But now let's talk about another aspect of this. Let's talk about when Jesus comes. And let's take our Bibles, go to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 15. And the Bible says a lot about the coming of Jesus. And let's just see what it says about when he comes. When he comes, is he going to reign in Jerusalem? When he comes, is he building the temple? Well, in the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, let's begin over here in about verse 23. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after those who are Christ at his coming. There we go, talking about the coming of Christ. Then comes the end. Got that? When Christ comes, he's not starting the kingdom. It's the end. Then comes the end, verse 24, when he hands over the kingdom to God. How can he hand it over if he hadn't started it yet? When Christ comes, he's delivering the kingdom, not starting the kingdom. Hands it over to God the Father, and he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. He must reign. Now, it's hard to reign unless you have a kingdom. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. And let me ask you a question. Do you think anywhere on this planet today somebody died? Yes. In this country? Yes. In this state? Yes. In this community, yes. Christ is reigning until there's no more death. What does that mean? He is the king. How can you be a king if you don't have a kingdom? Now go with me to the book of 2 Peter, chapter 3. Again, this thought is brought up. 2 Peter, chapter 3. In verse 4, the question's asked. 2 Peter 3, verse 4. Where is the promise of his coming? That's what we're talking about, the coming of Jesus. All these famous preachers say when he comes, he's, there's going to be a battle, he's going to set the kingdom, and all these things. Well, what they're saying in this passage is where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Nothing changes. Yesterday's like today, today will be like tomorrow, nothing ever changes. Now, jump ahead to verse 10. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar. The elements will be destroyed with intense heat <clears throat> and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed, he's not establishing, is he? He's not building. There's no Jerusalem being talked about here. The earth and its works are going to be burned up with intense heat. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of that which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we're looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So, the temple is established. It's us. The kingdom is here. When Jesus comes, it's not to start things, it is to finish things. Once again, some things we need to see. Now, let's go to the book of John, and let's run through these verses. There's three verses I want you to notice. Because according to the premillennial theory, 
Jesus did not accomplish what he wanted. He came to establish the kingdom, but he was rejected and nailed to the cross. So he's got to come again and do that because he didn't get to complete what he wanted to do. So over here in John chapter 4, verse 34, Jesus said to them, My food is due to the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. I came to do what the Father wanted me to do. We go to the next passage, John chapter 17 and verse 4. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work you gave me to do. I accomplished what you told me to do. Well, what about that kingdom? What about, what about this church age? And then on the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. Not I am finished. It. What's it? What I came to do, I accomplished. And so once again, just another piece in that big theory that when we look at it from the biblical standpoint, it just doesn't make sense to what people are saying. One of the most serious things to me about believing this theory it is not simply i would suggest well how would you draw this timeline and we're just arguing over really indiscriminate details this theory says there are going to be three resurrections the resurrection of the righteous at the rapture then after that period of seven years of tribulation the resurrection of those tribulation saints that have lost their lives during a a a period of intense worldwide persecution and then the resurrection and judgment of the wicked i would suggest to you if the bible doesn't say that if it doesn't reveal that to tell people that, well, if you miss out on his first coming, it's going to be hard, but there are going to be more opportunities. You see how that is potentially a very, very, very big deal if there is only one resurrection at the end. And if we listen to Jesus, he doesn't talk about three. He talks about one. Over and over and over again. In John 5, do not marvel at this. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I I have a tough time figuring out how we can put in a span of a thousand years just in that that phrase an hour is coming he he says in John chapter 6 this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me but raise it up on the last day for this is the will of my father that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day verse 44 no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and i will raise him up on the last day verse 54 whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and i will raise him up on the last day to tell people if you miss out on the first opportunity there will be another one later on 
is to give them what I believe is false hope that God has not promised. Absolutely. This is a little bit long, but let's, let's just wrap it up with one more aspect here. Take your Bibles and go to the book of Revelation. And Revelation is a major place where a lot of these theories come from. It's where they find a thousand-year reign. It's where they find the word Armageddon. But you don't just jump in chapter 19 and chapter 20. It's like just opening up any book and jumping in the middle without understanding what's going on. So let, let's look at the first four verses of chapter 1, and then we'll go to the last chapter. Revelation chapter 1, he says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John. The word communicated or signal or signified of the translations tells us that this is a visionary book. This is like a, a child's picture book. I'm going to show you things and there's meaning behind them. What you see is really what, it's not it, it's, it's, there's a message behind that. He who testified, verse 2, uh, to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that saw it. Blessed is he who reads, and blessed are those who hear the words of the prophecy, and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, verse 4, says, to the seven churches that are in Asia. This letter was first written to seven churches. They were going through persecution. And so when they read this letter, it was hope against a powerful Roman fourth kingdom that we read about that's stronger than iron. We as Christians, we have no army. We have no military. How can we stand up to this? This is the answer. It's written for the people first and foremost there. Now go to the last chapter, if you will, chapter 22. And again, notice how this book ends, just what was said. Revelation chapter 22, it, and it says in verse 7, Behold, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Once again, verse 10, And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Verse 12, Behold, I am coming quickly. Now, if after services I say, I'm going to come to your house quickly, Mike, it gets to be midnight, he called me and said, well, where are you coming? Well, Mike said, I'm going to be there in 20 years. You think, you're nuts. What does this book mean if those people read it and it's not even here yet 2,000 years later? First and foremost, this meant to the original readers what the message was. Really appreciate your very kind attention this evening. Um, just one thing that I would add. Okay, what, what is the hope for Israel today? And what we want you to hear is there is nothing in the Bible that would lead us to believe, okay, the only hope for Israel is the United States of America. Or the only hope for the United States of America is Israel. Now, you will hear people on major cable news networks talking like that. I don't believe that can be backed up with the Bible. The hope for Israel is the same hope for anyone. It is the hope that the Apostle Paul described in Romans chapter 11. That Israel had been cut off 
because they had rejected the Lord's Messiah. Gentiles had come in when Jews rejected their own Messiah. And Paul looks at that dynamic and says in Romans 11, Behold the kindness and severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, who's the they? Well, it's his own countrymen, the Jews. He says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for my countrymen is that they may be saved, but they can't be saved without accepting Jesus as their Messiah. If they do not continue in their unbelief, if they come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah and submit themselves to him, God can graft them into the new Israel, the way that we talked about last Sunday evening, Israel's hope, the world's hope, wherever, whenever you leave, the only hope is the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to anyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Good. Let's go to it. Okay. I know we've had a lot tonight. And it reminds me of some of my college classes. You just walk out with your head hurting. <laughs> There's just a lot of stuff there. And we would recommend you do a couple things. First of all, like grandma's soup, let it settle just a little bit. Think about it. And go over some of these verses. That's why we've given you the outline. So go over these verses again. It may help some of you to go back over this again tonight. We have recorded this, and so it's there, and you might want to go over it again with your Bible and kind of, kind of think about it a little more heavily as, as you think about some of the things there. Again, some of the takeaways from tonight. What if, what if Hamas wins and Israel is blown off the map? It doesn't do anything to this. It doesn't do anything to this. We do not need a physical Israel to exist today what if every jew on the planet died it doesn't do anything to this now we're not in favor of war we think god is against war we don't think it's good that people have abused and hurt people that is never the right thing to do but what we need to see is we don't need israel to remain in israel for god's promises to come about god's promises are found in Jesus Christ. And so whether you be Jewish or not, whether you be from Israel or not, whether you be American or not, none of that matters. What matters is, do I follow Jesus Christ? And so we hope that this series, and particularly tonight, tonight's lesson is the one that you're going to get most pushback from your coworkers and your family because they're hearing these prominent preachers. They're hearing these commentators on the news. And what they're saying is, if Israel is not surviving, it changes the world. It's doomsday. No, it's not. No, it's not. Babylon doesn't exist today. Persians do not exist today. Greek as an empire does not exist. Rome is a city, but it's not a world power. The kingdom of God has crushed all of them. And it endures today. And it will continue to endure until Jesus delivers it back to the Father. And so that's what we need to see. Put these verses back in your mind. Get, get this strong in your heart. Understand, we're, we're, we're hearing a lot of things about this. 
And again, to what we've said, very, very few people are opening their Bibles. They're listening to their popular preachers. They're listening to the newscast. They're getting all excited. People are taking sides. And what we need to do is just open our Bibles and see what Jesus says. And so this evening, as we do in all of our lessons, we offer the invitation of Jesus Christ. When this world ends, and it will end someday, and it may be that this nation ends before the world ends, we need to see that it doesn't matter whether I was a Republican or Democrat, it doesn't matter whether I was an American or European, Israeli, what will matter is, do I know Jesus? Did I follow Jesus? In my times, did I follow Jesus? That's what matters. And so that's what was preached. Those early apostles went everywhere preaching that kingdom. And what they were preaching was salvation in Jesus Christ. And so this evening, if you're not a Christian, we'll be happy to sit down with you, open our Bible, and talk about these things. You may have some questions. Jason and I try to do our best to answer some of these questions. There's a lot of stuff there, and we realize that. And that's why we try to make this easier for you as we've gone through these things tonight. But we want you to see, and we want you to see there's a lot of fog, a lot of smoke out there, a lot of stuff being said. And just because a man stands behind a pulpit, it could even be in our fellowship, it doesn't mean it's truthful. What makes it right is, is it right with this? This is what's always right. And this is where we always want to stand. So if you, we can help you in any way, won't you come as we stand?